In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Hey guys, this is Jim Ramos with Men in the Arena and the author of the book, The Full Capacity Man. What you're about to listen to is a message I gave to a local gathering of men. I thought you might like to listen to this even if you weren't at the actual event. And so I hope you enjoy this bonus episode on the Men in the Arena podcast. So Joe Lewis, a.k.a. the Brown Bomber, was world heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949. Some say he's the greatest heavyweight to ever fight. And he said this, he said... We're only given one life to live, but if you do it right, once is enough. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight, about starting right now, right? You cannot go back and make a brand new start, my friend, but everyone can start from now and make a brand new end, right? My favorite poem, right? Because it's short and easy and, and I can give myself credit for it and not have to, I don't know who said it. So anyway, so, so there are 86,400 seconds in a day. If you live to be 100, you will live 36,500 days. That sounds real short. That's it. Maybe you get 36,000 days and it's over. You know, but if you do it right, once is enough. I was hiking with my son James when he was a little guy up Monte Duro. I, was on, I had a, a pack frame. And I used to, because when you got kids, you're trying to live your life, but you got kids. So you got to help Mama Sita, right? So I throw a kid on my backpack and walk with him. And I'm walking with James and he's like six years old. He goes, you know, Dad? I've been thinking, I'm like, you're six. You know, he said, you know, every second is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, we literally painted that on our wall. We just reflected on it. This is true. Every second is a once in a life opportunity and every life we give, we're only given one of those. And so we need to focus on the three, I believe the three most important questions in life. And over and over again, I hear guys like me get up here and say, we're going to talk about this and we never really get to it. Tonight, I'm going to try to get to it. The three most important questions that you can ask in your life, Christian, non-Christian, I don't care what you believe, are these. Who am I? Why am I here? And what am I going to do about it? Right? Who am I? Why am I here? And what am I going to do about it? These are the most important questions. And so if, when I speak to younger guys, I, I, I want to give some advice. And this is my personal advice. And I think a lot of the older guys go, hmm, that's actually really good advice. What you do, what you do does not define who you are. That is not what defines you. Rather, who you are should define what you do. In other words, build your life, build your life on who you are. Build your life around who you are more than what you do. Dwight Moody said this, he said, preparation for old age should begin no later than one's teens. A life which is empty of purpose until 65, we have some 65-year-olds in here, will not suddenly become filled on retirement. 
Build your life and career around who you are, not what you do. But for you to do that, you have to ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? Now I know you're going, oh, I'm a son of God. I'm a child of the king. I'm a born again. I'm born again. I'm, you're, you know, all the generic stuff. Okay, let's, we're not going to deal with that tonight. You can read your Bible and pick that stuff out. We're going to deal with you personally. Who are you, per, Ryan? Who are you personally? And I'm not going to sing, uh, you know, a who song. All right, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I will give you a theological caveat that I want you to talk about at your table groups here in a second. I was at Hume Lake Christian Camps in the mid-90s with, with my youth group. And I heard this guy from the pulpit. There's like a thousand students out there. And I heard this speaker say this thing, and it really ticked me off. He said this. He said, God does not need you. God does not need you. And I, that angered me because in my, I was like 30 years old at the time. I thought, well, heck, yes, he does. I mean, when God saved me, man, he got a good one. God, you got lucky because you could have picked some. I mean, you, you picked me, man. I mean, I was a star. You got the, you, you're lucky, God, that I got saved because you picked somebody else. It would have been tough for you. And I was like angry at this thing, right? And uh, I realized the more I processed, I was like angry because I knew it was true. God does not need me. I, I, that's humbling. But what I've discovered, it was so beautiful that God, in his great love for me as someone he created, in his creation, when he looked at me, when he looked at Isaac, when he looked at Seth, when he, when he looked at you guys, he said, I am going to, I love that guy so much. I am going to let him be involved in my grand kingdom drama. I'm going to include him in my mission. I'm going to give him a purpose, not because I need him, but because I love him and I choose him. That is so powerful that God is saying to you this, this evening, I don't need you, but I have something I want you to do. And that thing I have for you to do is going to give you such a purpose. And so I just love Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Man, that sounds easy. But if you go to verse 13, he says, hey, if you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me. So God is saying, hey, boy, this stuff isn't easy. It's going to cost you. But I will allow you, if you seek me, if you go all in for me, I will help you to discover who I am and in the process help you to answer the most important questions. Who am I and why am I here? In Exodus chapter 4 verse 2, God says, what is that in your hand? He says, it's a staff. So we need to answer the question tonight. I told you we'd answer this question. Who am I? So here it is. Are you ready? Who am I? One of the things that Moses was asked to throw down was his identity. So the staff in his hand, the staff in his hand really uh, it represented who he was. He was a shepherd. For 40 years he'd been a shepherd. For so long he'd forgot his training and how to speak in the Pharaoh's court. He, he forgot who he was being raised as, as a prince of Egypt. He had forgotten all these things. But what he didn't forget, what was in his hand. And God said, hey, what is in your hand? A staff. Throw it down. This would be like God saying to you, what's in your hand? A toolbox. I'm a, I'm a mechanic. Uh, a helmet. I'm a lineman. Uh, uh, a, a, a drum set. I'm a drummer. I mean, this would be like saying, what, what do you do for a living? 
Now think about how radical this is. God is saying, what is in your hand? He's saying, everything that brings in income is in my hand. I'm identifying everything that pays the bills, keeps my kids fed, keeps my wife happy. Everything that identified him was in his hand. And God asked him to throw it down. Throw it down. Because what God was saying to him was, your staff is not who you are. What you do is not who you are, Moses. So when I think of what's in my hand, I think of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, when God says, uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I, Isaiah's going, here I am, here I am, send me, send me. That's right there in the Bible, guys. And I love this one. I love this one so much. Second Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Again, God doesn't ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. He knew what was in Moses' hand. He knew it was more than a piece of wood, more than a dowel, more than a, a hook, a shepherd's hook. He knew that. He wanted to know if he was willing to let go of everything he knew up to that point to embrace the radical story that God was calling him to. So what's in your hand, guys? This is some old school stuff, but this is, when I ask, when I ask the question, in fact, my personal vision is to glorify God with my spiritual shape, and I go to describe what that is. So when I look at my hand, I look at five things. These five things identify who I am as a man, who I am as a human being, who I am as a follower of Jesus. Are you ready for this? This is so easy. Spiritual gifts. S. What are your spiritual gifts? If you're a follower of Jesus, guys, we got to know what our spiritual gifts are. You can go online. You can take a test. They're super simple. You can email me. I can mail you a test. If you attend a church, your church has a test. A lot of churches, their test kind of is based on the church that you're at a little bit. But you can get these tests really easy, and it's really fun to go, here are my spiritual gifts. And I can tell you what mine are, boom, I know them, boom, that fast, boom. And when I launched, the men the, when I launched this organization in, in the 2012, God gave me the gift of faith. I'd never had the gift of faith before. God was like, that boy needs some faith, because he's slept in like a month. And so God gave me a gift to get me through a season, right? So what are your spiritual gifts? And I like to take a spiritual gifts test about every five years because I like to see what God is doing in my life. Spiritual gifts. H, what is your heart? I remember I was preaching in front of a church, church on the hill actually, thousand people in the church, and God was kind of doing a new work in my life, and I just proclaimed to the church, hey church, I have a passion for young men. They almost gave me the collar on the spot, boys. I mean, tell me, you know what I mean? I mean, I was like, I like, you know, when things come out of your mouth and you're like, I just shouldn't have said it. But I knew at that point my heart was shifting to like to to helping men. And, and, that, and that's really what guided my this this shift of calling to me was God changing my heart. So what are you passionate about? Like when it comes to the church, what really angers you about the church? That might be your passion. I mean, think about this for a second. What are you just, what, do you, what ignites the passion in you? Pursue that thing. That's your age, your heart or your passion. A, what are your abilities? What are your talents? What are the things you do well? 
I mean, what do, what do you do? What are the things that you are naturally good at? I'm very poor at almost everything. Like I don't do anything very well, but I do a couple things really well. So, so what are, what are your learned talents? What are the things that you're gifted at? Right? I mean, in the body of Christ, we're always leveraging that right with each other, leverage each other gifts and talents. So what are those things you're good at? P what is your personality? What is your temperament? Uh, you can Google Florence Littower's Personality Plus. You can ask me to send you an email. Uh, this is such a great test. It goes all the way back to Hippocrates. Where he te- There's so many personality temperament tests out there. It's unbelievable. I really love hers because she takes um, physical uh, fluid levels in your body and measures them and comes up with four personalities, melancholic, choleric, phlegmatic, or sanguine. Uh, some people give them pet names, golden retriever, otter, beaver, and um, lion. Some people call them colors or, or they just do different things to them, right? Red, green, yellow, blue, or something like that. I don't know. There's the disc test. There's Myers-Briggs. There's, there's now the Enneagram. There's so many things out there to help you to understand who you are from a temperament standpoint. Or if you just don't like tests, you go, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, right? So whatever. And the, la- and the last thing is experiences. What are the things that have happened to you in life that God, when you're through the process of mourning and healing, will use? If I have a guy come to me and says, hey, my, my dad just died, I don't know what to do. I go, well, I got a guy to call. Or if somebody says, hey, my parents just got a divorce, what do I do? I go, I'm your guy. Or if I have somebody comes to me and says, hey, my, I got a teenager who's kind of like having some mentally, mentally, I'll call, hey, Ian, Ian, can you help? Because you worked with a kid like that. Or if somebody says, hey, man, I'm really struggling with porn. I've got a guy in this room who I go, hey, can you help this guy out? I mean, over and over again, there are guys in this room that I'm leveraging your experiences, right? Right? Because God doesn't waste a wound, right? So we take this whole story and we put this together as your spiritual gift, your shape, your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personalities, and your experiences. So we talked about <clears throat> your identity, throwing down your identity, talked about throwing down your excuses, talked about throwing down your fears. So hopefully this first question, who am I? I can find no other way to answer that question but with a shape. To me, that is the best resource out there for me to go, oh, this is how I'm different than an introvert or a person who lost a loved a spouse or a person who lost a sibling or a person who, who lost whatever or, or whatever. So we're different. We have all these things we bring to the table, right? So I'm going to go back to chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 17. And something really interesting happens here that I think is noteworthy. In chapter 4, verse 17, God says to Moses, right? He throws it down, turns into a cobra, picks it up by the table, tail. So the very thing that he was afraid of, right? God transformed into something miraculous. Something miraculous happened. He threw down, he threw down this fear and he picked up the thing he ran from, all right? Verse 17, God says something so profound to me. He says, but take this staff. Not your, this new staff. Take this new staff. I just gave you, take this staff in your hands, this new staff. So you can perform miraculous signs with it. Now look, skip down to verse 20. This is really interesting. And he took 
the staff of God in his hands. Why am I here? Who am I? Now, why am I here? Why am I here? This is the hand that you are going to deal to the world. So when I answer the question, who am I? I'm answering the question, what hand have I been dealt? Does that make sense? My I've been dealt my spiritual shape. When I answer the second question, why am I here? I'm answering a different question. I'm answering the question, what hand will I deal to the world? Based on who I know about myself, now I've got to deal that to the world. I used to have a, a, a reminder, it came up on my phone every day, and it was from John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, and it said, let the world, because our tendency is to apologize for who we are. Right? Because the world doesn't want, they really don't want who you are. They want you to be like everybody else. So this thing on my, remote, on my phone says, let the world feel the whole full weight of who I am and let them deal with it. Hey, listen, what you think of me is not my problem. That's between you and God. I'm going to give you every bit of who I am. And then you can go digest that on your own time. And I hope you give me all of who you are. But what hand will you deal the world? Do you know that in Exodus, there are 17 times in the book of Exodus where this is referred to? And it's referred to the staff of God. Every reference to it is either called the staff of God or it is alluded that this is no longer a shepherd's staff, but this is a staff of power. Right? I just want to say you shall not pass. Anyway, sorry. Lord of the Rings joke. Okay. I mean, you know, but ever since then, it never, it's always identified. So God miraculously changed his identity so that when people saw this thing in his hand, they didn't identify it with Moses, the shepherd. They identified it with the God who put Moses on display. I mean, look at Exodus for your own. It's just beautiful what happens here. And what I want to say is this, is God loves to transform our common tools, your hammer, your helmet, your tool bench, your tennis shoes, your guitar, your drum set. He wants to take and transform our common tools into symbols of his mighty power. Here's, a, here's one reference for you. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of your men and go out to the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Wow. Moses figured it out. So I think of my life. I think, okay, if I'm going to deal something to the world based on the hand that God has dealt me, what, is that, what do we call that in real life? What we call that is your values. What are the things in your life, Stephen Covey would call those the big rocks. What are the four or five things in your life that drive your life? Not, not, not verbally drive your life, but actually drive your life. What, I know that, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I, mean, I read the Bible, like literally, like, well, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to lie to you a little bit, but almost every morning, I read the Bible. I read the Bible. That, 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 that drives me. I got home last night at 2.30 in the morning because my wife had her five-year anniversary as a flight attendant. And she, uh, one of her uh, uh, gay flight attendant buddies, he's like a 50-year-old guy. He's married to another dude. He loves my wife. So he gave her this 50-hour layover. So we went and did a 50-hour layover. I got it at 2.30 in the morning. I'm, I'm hurting right now. But you know what? It's worth it because, I mean, I value that part of my life. 
My kid Darby, hey, you want to go shooting Friday, Dad? Heck no, I don't have time to go shooting Darby. Yes, I will. Yes. Yes, I will. Because that's my, that's my kid I'm talking about. Right? So what are the things that actually drive you? And we should all have very similar things, right? Your relationship with God should be a value that drives you. Your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your, with, uh, your church, uh, uh, health. If you're a Christian man, you should care about your health, right? There are certain things that should drive us, right, guys? These are the things that you deal to the world. Because if you start talking about these things that drive you and they're not actually driving you, you just laid the staff back down. You put it down. I can't deal my hand to the world if I'm not living out daily and fleshing out these things I say I really believe in, right? And that's what we're talking about. So what for? And you know how you can tell? You can look at my Instagram history, Facebook history, text thread. I don't have bank account stuff there. Come look at my bank account. I can take this phone. I can tell you exactly what drives your life. And if I had us all switch around, Dave's over there going, yeah, let's There's a lot more guys doing what they shouldn't be doing. They don't admit it. I know what you value. I can tell by your keys. Anybody got a watch? I can tell what you value, how you spend your time. Let me look at your wallet. Let me look at your checkbook. I can tell where your money's going. I can tell what you value. We value what we do, not what we say. So when I talk about the most important question, who am I? I'm talking about the hand that God has dealt me, good or bad or ugly. When I talk about the hand I'm going to deal to the world, I'm talking about the things that actually drive my life. In 2006, I did something that was a game changer for me. Um, I wrote my obituary. And I'm, I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read part of it to you. I'm not going to read it all to you. Some of the stuff you don't need to hear and I don't want you to hear. But I wrote this in 2006 and it's been interesting to see how some, how much, some of these things are playing out. But it's a great way to really take a look at your life. And how well did you answer the questions, who am I and why am I here? After a time of prayer and worship, James William Ramos, 93, <laughs> went to be with the Lord on Sunday, surrounded by his wife and family in their family home. Jim moved his family to McMinnville, where he was pastor until June of 2011. So I missed it by a year. This was written in 06. Didn't know. When he resigned to write The Great Hunt for God, that book is actually called The Field Guide, The Bathroom Book for Men. The success of that book inspired a resurgence of unapologetic biblical masculinity. So this is in 06. I did everything six, seven years later. Unapologetic biblical Christian masculinity in the Northwest that swept across the country. Jim continued to write, publishing over 20 books, 11 so far, guys, or 12, I can't remember one of those. In his lifetime, is focused on helpless helping men, speaking in every state across the U.S., and writing a daily devotional to biblical masculinity to an audience of over one million people. Half of them are women. Jim and Shama traveled the country writing, speaking, and encouraging men and their wives for the next 25 years until deciding to slow it down for a bit, Shanna recalls. She outlives me. They always do. They mostly. Obsessed with finishing strong, Jim would spend the final two decades of his life mentoring young men, speaking on biblical masculinity, and finishing several more books. Jim loved to hunt and spend time with his, mentoring his sons and their numerous 
African safaris and backpack trips into the Alaskan wilderness. Actually, we've got one planned for 2025. When asked what his greatest accomplishment was in life, Jim said, being faithful to Shanna, raising three godly sons and finishing strong. When asked what one sentence would define his life and his message, he said, you don't have to be the best. You simply have to outlast the rest. Oldest son, James, stated with a contagious smile, dad wouldn't stop. He drove mom crazy until the day he died. He kept writing, speaking and telling us he just wanted to die well and finish strong. He was the greatest model of manhood a son could ever had, but he never did learn how to type. Son Darby said, Dad was my mentor, hunting partner, hero, and greatest example of Jesus I ever met. He inspired me to make a difference and enter full-time ministry. I don't know about that. See you later, old man. I hate it when he calls me that. Youngest son Colton said, I got to spend my life with the greatest man I've ever known. He loved mom and us. And God's will until he died. You did it right, Dad. So that emotion comes after 2006. But it's, it's, it's answering the questions, guys. Who am I and why am I here? And I'm going to ask you a question and we're going to close tonight. The third question is, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? It is never too late to do something about it. Never too late. We, the older we get, the more mistakes we make, the more baggage we carry, the more people we've wounded but it's never too late. It's never too late to let God take all that crap and have you throw it on the floor, let you pick it up again, and let him turn it into something miraculous. I, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that he loves to do that with all my heart. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.